lives forever. Would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Oh Lord, our God, we come to you this day and we ask your blessing upon us. We ask that you would teach us from your word. We ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts and help us to understand your word. I pray for myself, Lord, as your appointed minister of this church, that you would help me preach your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and edifying to your people. And on this day, Lord, I pray for all pastors in God-fearing pulpits that we would bring forth your word in a manner which demonstrates your love, mercy, power, and eternity. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. The spirit of the season, the spirit of the season, it's upon us. Are you enraptured with the spirit of this season? Are you filled with the joy of this season? What season is that exactly? Maybe you've heard people say in recent days and weeks, I'm just not in the Christmas spirit. Well, if they said that, you should say, well, that's okay, because Christmas isn't even upon us yet. Technically speaking, we're in the spirit of Advent. Advent's a little different than Christmas. Advent is the season in the church year, in the church calendar, where we ponder, where we think upon Christ's Advent, his coming in mortal flesh. Christmas is the season in the church year, when we ponder and think about his actual birth as the son of the living God. They are interrelated, of course, but they are distinct. Now let me just say a word quickly about the church the church calendar. The church calendar, the church year, is perfectly fine and good within limited confines, as far as it goes. It's perfectly fine to mark The great events in Christ's earthly life, his birth, his conception, his birth, elements of his life, of course, his passion, his suffering, his death, and of course his resurrection. It's good to highlight those things. But there is a danger if we take the church calendar too far. If we take the church calendar too far, it can be very dangerous. And here's where the danger is. It can get our eyes off of Christ the King. You see, if you need help, a baby in a manger is not exactly the first individual you run to. If you need help, and you have a choice between a baby in a manger and a king wearing a crown on a throne, to whom will you run? You see, if we focus too much upon this aspect of this season, we can easily forget that Christ is risen. We can easily forget that he is our king. We can easily forget that he is fighting for us in prayer through the power of his spirit. We can easily forget that he is powerful, that he is sovereign, and that his rule is absolute and knows no boundary. And that his kingdom is slowly stretching out throughout the earth until the last enemy is defeated. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the last enemy to be defeated is death. You see where I'm going with this? 
It's good to mark the church calendar, the highlights of Christ's life. But let us always remember where he is right now. He's on his throne. What do you think he's doing there? You see, if we take the church here too seriously, it can almost turn into a fertility cycle. Oh, he's coming again. He's going to be born again. No, he's not. He's been born once. He lived once. He died once. He rose once. And he is forever and ever, amen, the perfect God-man on his throne. We look back and we remember his conception, his advent, and his birth. But we always need to do that with the, through the lens of the resurrection, through the lens of his ascension, realizing he really is there. He really is on his throne. And that's very important, because you see, if we fail to remember, and it's hard to remember this, that he is a king on his throne, Life can easily grind us to powder. It really is just that simple. It doesn't take very long. And if you get your eyes off Christ as king for a few months, a few years, I promise you, you will be powder. And if life begins to grind us down like that, what's the effect of that? Quite frankly, our Christian joy is zapped. It it evaporates. And we have no joy in serving the risen king. And a joyless existence is a great tragedy in the Christian life. It's a great tragedy in the Christian life. How many of us truly understand that the joy of the Lord is our strength? How many of us understand that God actually wants us to be filled with joy? Particularly in our tradition, the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, we've got a lot of things going on. That joy thing, every now and again, we could probably use a little boost of it. You realize that joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We all know that we should be loving, correct? We all know that we should be humble. I'm just going to grab a few off the top of the tree. Love, humility, joy. Joy. It's a little different than happiness. Happiness is dependent on circumstances. Joy is deep-rooted. Christ was filled with the joy of the Lord all the days of his life. And if you read the Gospels, you realize he didn't have a lot of great joyous circumstances. Think about his birth. His birth was not glorious His birth was notorious. His birth was painful for his mother. Those of you who are mothers or grandmothers, just think how painful it was. Filthy, dirty, stinking barn. Not a sanitized wing of a children's hospital. His mother under shame, open to abuse, open to charges of perverse actions, guilty under the Jewish law of death if convicted. These are not auspicious circumstances with which to begin one's life. By all 
sociological standards, Christ came into the world with no great prospects before him. A lowly family, a dirty manger, not even t- not even warm. Not even warm. And from the moment he was born, the evil one was hounding him. And we see it in such actions as Herod demanding that all the infants ages two and under be slaughtered. That was the beginning of your king's life. You see, it's good for us to touch base with that and to realize he really did go through all of that for us. But all of that, as awful as it was, was a cakewalk compared to the cross. Those last few days of Christ's life, you'll never understand what that was like. The pressure, the torment. When we view his incarnation and understand that he really is a man, that when they hit him, it hurts. That when he fell as a child, it hurts. And it hurt in a way that we don't experience pain because he was perfectly sinless. We experience everything that goes on in our life as regenerate sinners, but we are still sinners. We don't know what it's like to be perfect. At least I don't. Anybody want to take a stab at that one? I don't think we want to. We don't know what it's like to suffer, truly to suffer, absolutely unjustly. There might be times in your life when you're accused of something that you absolutely are innocent of, but you might be guilty of other things. But the pain really hurts, isn't it, when you're accused of something you didn't do? Your children, have you ever maybe been blamed for something that somebody else did, and you feel as if you're being unjustly accused by your teachers or your parents? Sure, it hurts. But imagine never ever doing anything that warranted any type of accusation, much less a conviction, and then having the conviction of the entire world placed on your back. You can't go there. You don't know what that, you don't know what that existence looks like. And you don't want to. You don't want to know what that pain is like, because you know what that pain is? It's hell. That's what the Apostles' Creed means when he says he descended into hell. He experienced hell on that cross. So are you filled with joy? Spirit of the season? Maybe things were going well. Hustle and bustle. Maybe doing a little shopping. Some baking. Eating some rich foods. Receiving Christmas cards and giving Christmas cards, touching base with old friends, family members that you really only talk to once a year or so. And then these tragedies happen. I don't think any of us will forget 
where we were on Friday. When we see such senseless evil in the land, the land of the free, the land of the brave, the land where Christ is legal and allowed. We see that and our joy does seem to disappear. And if we as Christians felt that joy disappear, and if your joy didn't disappear a little bit, then something probably is a little wrong. Can you imagine not being a Christian and having to deal with those type of things? I can't begin to fathom what it's like to go through life without Christ as my king. I'm just not tough enough. I'm not strong enough. We need him. And people were asking, where was he? He's on his throne. It's a great mystery. And it's not enough to just say that it's a mystery that we can't understand, but you know what? Sometimes that is really the only answer. How can a just and perfect almighty king allow that to happen? What we have to do is take a step back and realize that what happened on Friday, as horrifying as it was, is almost day-to-day existence for a lot of people in other places. It happens all the time. Children grow up in war zones. They see war from the moment they're born. And what we have to understand when we segue this into Christ's incarnation is Christ really understands all this because when he was conceived and born, like I said last week, he was born into a war zone. He was the focal point of the entire war. As a tiny, helpless, innocent babe, literally in a manger, he was the focal point of the entire war. All the forces of the evil one were focused just on him. Now, the next time you go to Christ in prayer, as your resurrected and ascended king, you can realize he really does understand my troubles. He really does understand my pain because he had more pain and more pressure than any of us will ever begin to imagine. And that should bring us a certain measure of joy. Joy is not happiness, as I said. And joy is spiritual. Joy is not always walking around with a smile on your face, laughing at the top of your lungs, even in the midst of tragedy. Joy is a deep understanding that God is good, even in the midst of horror, even in the midst of tragedy. It's not dependent upon a particular circumstance. Will our joy be more powerful at times? Will our joy be more evident at times? Certainly, yes. When things are going good, it's easier to feel that joy. It's easier to express it. But don't we need that real joy at the worst times of our lives? 
when the momentum is kind of gone, when life is really trying to grind us down, that's when we need the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is an aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can't rev it up in yourself. You can't. You can put on the happiest, most chirpy music you want. Go to a worship service where it's a, you know, it's a mega event. Dance, and it, if it's not from the Spirit, it won't be lasting deep joy. It will be an emotional pump-up. And how often do emotional pump-ups last? Well, they depend, it depends. But usually not an incredibly long time. A day, two days, until the next bump in the road comes, and then you need another, you need another boost. I like you to think for a minute about an Old Testament character named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an interesting fellow. He was an exile. A little Old Testament history here for you. God, because of ancient Israel's infidelity over the centuries, ordained that the godless, evil Babylonians would burn down his own temple, the Temple of Solomon. Burn it down, raise it to the ground. Never in the history of the ancient world had anything been done like that. The Israelites acknowledged our God did this to his own house. The pagan cultures around them would have said, What? Our enemies destroyed our, our pagan temples, but your own God did this to you? The same God who brought you up out of Egypt? This is a strange God you Jews serve. He does great things, and then, boy, oh boy, he just goes Old Testament on you. Nehemiah is a functionary in the court during the time of the exile. He has a fairly cushy existence. He lives in the palace. He's not slaving in the fields. But he is downcast. He has no joy because he understands that the temple of the Lord has not been yet rebuilt, according to the prophecies. And the emperor asks, I'm paraphrasing here, well, what's wrong? He says, well, how can I live here when the temple of my God and my people is in disrepair? So Nehemiah, believe it or not, this pagan emperor gives Nehemiah the building commission to go and build it. And he goes. And, you know, when the Babylonians drove the people out, other people moved in. So when the Jews started to come back, guess what? They weren't all that thrilled about their new neighbors. And they really weren't thrilled when they saw that temple getting rebuilt. Because you have to remember, the temple was where Yahweh had localized his presence. And the pagan world was deathly afraid of that. They wanted nothing to do with this God who could destroy Egypt and then hundreds of years later, from their view on a whim, wreck his own people. This is a terrifying deity to the pagan mind. They wanted nothing to do with this guy. Plus, he's only one of them, and he has all these rules. 600, some of them. It's just not fun. didn't look like fun to them. And they start to build the temple. And they, it starts to go well. And they get opposition. And they get ground down. 
And Nehemiah is charged with encouraging them. And he gives us this line, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where I'm getting that from. It's from the book of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now what we have to understand is that the temple was a real building where real covenantal transactions happened between God and his people. It really was a real place. Sacrifices happened there. Day of Atonement happened there. Big things happened there. But the temple was just a building. It represented something, someone far greater. And that person is Christ. Christ goes in, in Matthew 2. No, John 2, Matthew 21. I don't have my glasses on. Jesus clears the temple twice in his ministry. Once in John at the beginning of his ministry, and then in the other Gospels at the end of his ministry. And that's very significant. He clears it out of the money changers, and we think, oh, it's just because they were doing business. At first blush, it just looks like they're doing business. It's where they were doing business. They were doing business in what was called the court of the Gentiles. There was a section of the temple where Gentiles, non-covenantal people, could go and pray to the living God. And that was symbolic of the Great Commission of the Gospel of Christ going out to all of the nations of the world and saving them. And that's where the money changers were doing business. So that a Gentile could not go into the temple precincts and pray. And he clears it out and said, my father's house is a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. When he does that, that's quite a thing to do. The authorities ask him, well, who gave you this authority? What's, what's right do you have to do this? He says this strange, strange thing in John 2. He says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they laugh. Now, this is, this is not Solomon's temple, obviously. It's been rebuilt. And they laugh and they say, this, is take, this temple's taken a long time to build. You're gonna, we're going to tear it down. You're going to build it in three days. Super construction manager. They didn't realize that Jesus was making a prophecy there because the temple was his body. You see, the temple of Israel was a real place, but it signified Christ's body. The body that was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Where God localized his presence. Emmanuel, God with us. And you might recall when Jesus was on the cross, he said, It is finished. And the veil of the temple was torn in half. That veil represented non-access to God. You don't pass that veil unless you've got the right clothes on. You don't pass that veil unless you're the high priest. And you better be dressed right. You better have blood on your hands. And you better be looking good. Because if you cross that veil without the right clothes on, you are in a world of trouble. You will not come back. When that veil was torn in half, access to God through Christ was given to everyone who would come through him. And only through him, because remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You want to come past that veil? He is the temple. But it gets even deeper than that.
want you to go home and I want you to read 1 Corinthians 3. There Paul says this amazing thing that the church, the community of people, irrespective of physical location, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, the temple, the ancient temple, there's layers to its meaning. It's just a building where sacrifices happen. You burn it down. Right? You can kill Jesus' physical body. Oh, surprise, surprise, you rise, rise on the third day. Shut a church down in Ephesus. Hey, that's tragedy. Guess what? There's another one popped up in Moscow. Burn it down in Moscow. It's okay. One's just arisen in Timbuktu. You know what? We don't need buildings. We can have them and they're great. But even if they take away the buildings, the church is the people of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That Old Testament temple represented us. It represented all of the Christians throughout history. Your brothers and sisters right now who are worshiping. They're part of us. That's the communion of the saints. The temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cause for great joy? It should be. I also want to give you a little bit more homework. A couple more chapters up. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul is chastising them for their lewd behavior. And he says, don't you understand that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? If you're a Christian, not only are you a member of the church with a capital C, and that church with a capital C is the temple of the Holy Spirit, your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. How can Paul make such an outlandish claim? Here's how. Because of the incarnation of Christ. You see, Christ, the eternal word of God, becomes man. Gives dignity to our humanity. We matter because we are created in the image of God. And Christ came as the image of God, became man, born of a woman, born under a law, and that's why, after his resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit is given to us, and your bodies are literally mobile temples of the living God. Now that should give us two things. One, it should bring great joy to us and it should also make us just a little scared when we realize that the things we do in our body, the Holy Spirit is right there enjoying them with us. And that should be a very sobering thought when we think of our activities. And this is what I'd like to conclude with. Since our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, And since we are the temple of the living God, what we do in this body actually matters. And if you want the joy of the Lord this season, then what you do will affect that joy. You'll find something in the Christian life. The more you sin, the less joyful you are. I can't guarantee that you'll be bouncing off the walls if you don't sin. But I can guarantee you that if you continue to sin, that that joy will be zapped. Because God is holy. And God is just. And God is good. Christ is on his throne. You are mobile temples of the Holy Spirit. And we as a group, there's nothing they can do. Nothing. 
That's what Martin Luther said. They can kill the body. They can't take our soul. They can't take our mind. They can take the building, but we're still the church of the living God. It's unstoppable. That's the God you serve. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask you to give us the grace we need to care for your temple in a manner which is holy.